study here through the book of Chronicles. Mm-hmm. Yes, you may. Now, you said we'll see a difference. How will a new soundboard help me see a difference? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. This is, this, is li- this is life-changing, Marv, you know. It's, it's, it's the day I got saved, the day I married Dawn, and then this Sunday when you change the little black boxes a different direction. I... So there you go. We'll hear a difference hopefully on Sunday. So we not hear anything. Yeah, that's right. We'll see if it works. Uh, also, uh, wanted to mention too. You mentioned about tomorrow. I forgot to mention this. Uh, Jody Hoagland contacted me, and you know that uh, her daughter Becca was uh, in the hospital for a couple weeks. A couple weeks ago, uh, Becca's back in the hospital again. She has another partial blockage, and uh, she's going to be having surgery tomorrow at eleven. So please continue to keep Becca in prayer and Andrew in prayer and Jody in prayer with that. So surgery tomorrow at 11. Wanted to mention that as well, too. So, All right, 2 Chronicles chapter 1 here. We finished our study in 1 Chronicles last week with the ending of David's reign and him passing the kingdom over to Solomon. And the main focus is the idea of the building of the temple. If you go back and you read 1 Kings and 2 Kings, there's a whole lot of other information that's given. But in Chronicles, the main emphasis is focusing on the tribe here of Judah. Judah, especially at the bottom, and focusing on this idea of the temple being built. Now, I'm really excited because in the next couple weeks, we actually get to study into the temple. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about how the temple is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture of Christ. And the fascinating how the temple came to us. You know, it came to David in a dream. David wrote down the vision of this, the building plans. He gave it to Solomon. Solomon's going to build it. And we know that the temple is really just a replica of what's up in heaven. And we'll talk about that in the next couple of weeks. And Jesus said, the whole book, the whole book is written about me. So when we get to the temple, we get a chance to see that from the perspective of Christ and really understand what that means and looks like. So I really encourage you the next couple of weeks here to be with us in this study and hopefully be as blessed by it as uh, I am as well. But before we get into that, we have Solomon taking over the kingdom. Now, Solomon, we know, is a great king in his own right and many good things. And as we've talked about many times in our study in Chronicles, as Paul wrote in Corinthians, we're going to look at these guys as an example, an example of what to do and also an example of what not to do. Solomon starts out great, but he ends really bad. He ends really bad. And we'll get into that a little bit tonight of what made him start so good, but what made him falter at the finish. You have to remember Solomon is following in the footsteps of an amazing king in David. And Solomon's a bit concerned about this. This is why God is constantly telling him, be strong, be of good courage. So as we start Solomon's reign tonight, the emphasis is the temple. And let's see what happens. Verse 1. Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord as God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. 
And Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the captains of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges and to every leader in all Israel, to the heads of the fathers' houses. Then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place, which was at Gibeon. For the tabernacle meeting with God was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. But David had brought up the ark of God from kareth Jerim to the place David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. Now the bronze altar that Beelzeh, the son of Uriah, the son of Hur, had made, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord. Solomon and the assembly sought him there. And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. Now let's just stop right there. They're just setting the scene. If you remember correctly, a few weeks ago, David brought the ark to Jerusalem. But you have two places going on here. In Gibeon, you had everything else. That's where they set up the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a temporary place that was a tent that had all the instruments for the temple in it, and therefore it could be moved and transported when it needed to be. Well, they set that up in Gibeon. This is about five miles from Jerusalem. Well, David wanted the ark near Jerusalem, so he transported the ark. So you got the ark at Jerusalem, but everything else at Gibeon. So that's why you see these two different locations going on here. Ark is at Jerusalem. Everything else is at Gibeon, about five miles from Jerusalem. Solomon is coming. He knows his given order by his father, as we talked about last week, is it's time to build the temple. So what do they do in verse 5? Solomon and the assembly sought him there. They sought God there. That's a pretty strong word in the Hebrew language, to seek God. I really want to talk about what this means. Because so often we run into people that have a very casual relationship with the Lord. They're not opposed to the things of God. In fact, they may actively be involved in studies or ministries. They may be active in prayer and worship, etc. But this idea of seeking God is a whole nother level. Now, this is not a whole nother level based on you. It's based on your heart. If you've been with us on Sunday mornings, that's what we've been talking about. God doesn't want your outward obedience. He wants your heart. God doesn't want your outward righteousness. He wants your heart. Trust me, we live in a very religious area in Northwest Ohio. You will run into a lot of religious people. And they will jump through a whole lot of religious hoops, especially during this season of the year. God's not looking for outward obedience. He's looking for your heart. And what you see here, Solomon is seeking God. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. Psalm 119, verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. Remember that phrase, who seek him with the whole heart. Same book, you don't need to turn there, but Psalm 34. Psalm 34, chapter 10, excuse me, verse 10. That one says, the young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. So we have seeking testimony, seeking the law, seeking the Lord, and then we will not lack anything because we're seeking God. Now, a question we have to ask, is that our heart's desire? Do you really want everything God has for you? He's not going to force you. He's not going to push you, is he? He's going to encourage you. He's going to tell you you're going to be blessed, and I guarantee you, you will be blessed by doing it. But ultimately, you have to get up and you have to decide, is this what I want? Do I want everything that the Lord has for me? Solomon did, which takes us to verse 7. On that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask, what shall I give you? That's a pretty big question. Have you ever thought about that? When you go to bed tonight, God appears to you. Ask, what shall I give to you? What would you say? Think about that. There's another example. 
In the Gospels, Jesus came up to somebody who was blind and says, what do you want me to do for you? Can you imagine the creator of the universe coming and saying, ask, what shall I give you? What do you want me to do for you? Now, this is not a genie in a bottle request. This is not where you say, I want ten more wishes or something like that. This is basically God saying, how do you want me to move in your life? What do you want me to do for you in your life? Not what do you want. What do you want me to do in your life? Now, I I honestly mean this. What is it that the Lord wants you to do? What do you want him to do? To kind of keep order at the supper table, we like to ask questions to the kids. So one of the questions we asked is if you could have anything, anything, what would you want? What a fun question. So everybody goes around and they want this and, you know, they want that. Got to Kenan. Kenan, who is, uh, I don't know, he's one of the kids. He's got a certain age. I don't know how old he is now. Born June 14th. I can't even remember the year at this point. He's seven. Thank you. Edit that down for me, Dustin. He's seven. Ask Kenan, what do you want? He said, I want to see heaven. I thought, wow. Everybody else had these materialistic answers, including myself. I want to see heaven. And I, and I looked and I thought, what a neat childlike faith heart. He just wants to see the Lord. And I believe he was sincere with that. So Solomon has woke up from his sleep. Ask, what shall I give to you? What Solomon's response, verse 8, And Solomon said to God, You have shown great mercy to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, let your promise to David, my father, be established, for you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth and a multitude. If you don't catch what he's saying here in verses 8 and 9, he's saying, I got a lot of responsibility and I don't know what to do. That's what he's saying. I have this huge responsibility that I'm filling my father's shoes. Verse 8. Verse 9. I'm a king over a people like the dust of the earth and the multitude. He is intimidated by this job. And if you don't believe me, go back to what we studied last week where David kept saying, Solomon, be strong, be of good courage. The Lord is with you. And God comes to Solomon and says, be strong and of good courage. You can do this, Solomon. So what does he ask for? Verse 9. Now, O Lord God, let your promise to David, my father, be established. As for you, I said, you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth and a multitude. Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can judge this great people of yours? What a request. Do you see now why God asked him? God knew his heart. God was willing to give him the keys to the car, if you will. Because he knew his heart. He knew he could trust him. So, Solomon, what is it that you want? He knew he would want something good because he knew his heart. How do we know that? Because it goes back to verse 6. He was seeking him. Have you ever wanted more of the Lord? And you almost feel like the Lord is not allowing that to happen? Well, he knows your heart better than you. Does your Father in heaven trust you with the keys to the car? It was so nice this winter. Because, you know, as I mentioned to you before, we've got a couple of extra kids staying with us. And Brooke, who's going to be 16 here in just a few weeks, it was so nice to hand her the keys to the car and say, go warm it up. We can trust you. Layden, who's five, Dad, can I do it? No, but I can trust her. Has the Lord ever came to you and said, what do you want? If he can trust you, he'll ask you. He could trust Solomon. And I love this. He asked for wisdom and knowledge. Verse 10. Those are very interesting words there. Wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is just simply knowing God's way of handling a situation. I tell you, if you need wisdom in life and you just want to know how God wants you to handle every situation, 
Read the book of Proverbs. I cannot stress this to you enough. It's 31 chapters long, and I have encouraged you many times before, read a chapter of Proverbs a day. And if you've already read it numerous times in your Christian walk, I would go back and reread it again. Because nearly every life situation is hidden in that book in a little nugget. And when you get done reading that book, you know God's will. The word wisdom is mentioned 38 times in the book of Proverbs. What an amazing book on wisdom to know how to handle a situation God's way. Now, this word for knowledge is really interesting here that he mentions in verse 10. This word knowledge is only used a handful of times in the Bible. And it is only used, only used in reference to Solomon and Daniel. That's how powerful of a word it is. Because Solomon and Daniel had a special knowledge that was above everybody else. And it's only used for them. There's another very common word for knowledge that's used much more regularly. But this special word for knowledge, only Solomon and only Daniel get this word applied to them. So the question comes up. I keep going back to this point, verse 7. What, is, what do you want God to do for you? What do you want? In your heart, what is it that you want him to do? Because he is looking, he's looking for people that are seeking a deeper walk with him, a deeper relationship with him. And when he sees that person, he wants to come to them and say, I want to give this to you. Now, what is it you want? Because you know what? We don't need another person to just fill a seat at church. We don't need another person just to go be a productive member of society. We need people that are willing to stop and say, listen, people are dying and going to hell. Jesus Christ is returning. What am I going to do with that information? Is that going to change the way I live? Is that going to change the way that I act? Is that what I'm going to do? Those are the people the Lord is saying, I want to move in your life. I'm going to give you the keys to the car because I can trust you. And Solomon was one of those guys. Now, any quick questions, comments about that before we move on? Marcus. Yeah, you, you bring up a good point. Somebody can have amazing knowledge and not have wisdom. And I'm not saying this is how the Hebrew translates, but I agree with what you're saying, Marcus. When I think of knowledge, I think of head knowledge. When I think of wisdom, I think of common sense of how to handle some situations. And I've run into people that have amazing book knowledge, amazing book knowledge. But when it comes to common sense and how to handle a situation, they have no idea. And I've also run into people that could not get good grades in school no matter how much they tried. But they had a common sense and a wisdom on problems and situations that was just an amazing thing. And I think that's kind of what you're referring to, right? Yeah, it's that, it's that, that phrase I like to use of God's way of handling a situation. You see the situation, you know how to handle it, and then you can apply it to do it properly. Um, I think back to the book of Proverbs where we have wisdom to know when to keep our mouth shut. You know, we know that type of wisdom. We have that. Because the literal words, the literal words of knowledge means discernment or understanding. And that carries that idea of having a head knowledge. And that word for knowledge that's only used for Solomon and Daniel literally means mind and thought. And it's a different type of knowledge where the mind can see things that other people can't. It's a very deep thing. 
But I, I like that point there a lot. God wants us to have both. He wants us to have the head knowledge of the biblical attributes of understanding what he's teaching, but also he wants us to have the wisdom to, to be applying it to situations and saying, okay, now when I go out into a fallen world, I know how to handle this situation. Anybody else have anything they want to say here before we move on? Okay, God's response, verse 11. Then God said to Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked riches or wealth or honor or life of your enemies, nor have you asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have had who were before you, no shall any after you have the like. And you are really reaching a point here in this reign of Solomon, and especially in Israel, This is their apex, if you will. Solomon's name means peace. And Solomon's reign is a blessed reign by God. It doesn't end well. 1 Kings 11 tells the story of how Solomon starts going downhill in his faith and his walk with the Lord. You know the number, 700 wives, 300 concubines. He starts serving and worshiping other gods. And so what happens is God says in 1 Kings 11, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. And your kingdom is going to be split. And that's what happened after Solomon's reign. There became a civil war. And that's when you started getting the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So the question comes up. How can he be so wise but yet be so dumb? See, he asked for wisdom. He asked for wisdom in running this nation. And he knew how to run a nation. He did a great job of running a nation. But he never took the wisdom of running the nation and started applying it on how to run his personal life. See, and this is where we have to really understand, and and I can relate to this as a teacher. I can prepare a message, I can read the verses, I can underline, I can look up the Greek and the Hebrew. I can then preach it, I can teach it. Okay, but am I not going to live it? Am I going to allow it to become part of my personal life and my personal walk? Because that's what we're talking about here. Solomon had this amazing knowledge, this amazing wisdom, and he ran a wonderful nation, but he never applied it to his personal life. And I just want to encourage you spiritually. Maybe you're the type of person that you could go out and encourage somebody. You're the one that people ask for prayer. You're the one that can give the good Bible answers. Amen to that. But are you taking that and also applying it to you so that way it really affects you personally? Because if you never allow this to affect you personally, how can you really have that close walk with Christ? It's the same thing when it comes to sharing your faith. We used to all the time say, get out there and tell people about Jesus. The side effect of you being saved is you want others to see others get saved. If we have to pump you up to go spread the gospel, then I don't know how well you really know the gospel. Because when you really understand what Jesus did for you personally, how could you not want to go tell other people what Christ did for you? And see, here with Solomon, he's got the wisdom, he's got the knowledge, but he needs to apply it to himself, himself, and let that affect his life. It does affect him. Verse 13 Solomon came to Jerusalem from the high place that was at Gibeon from before the tabernacle of meaning and reigned over Israel. Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Also the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones. He made cedars as abundant as the sycamores which are in the lowland. And Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Kevev. The king's merchants brought them in Kevev at the current price. They also acquired and imported from Egypt a chariot for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. Thus through their agents they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Okay, he's got this amazing horse trade going on now. 
They're blessed. The, the nation is just in this amazing spot. What's the problem? Can you go with me to Deuteronomy 17, please? Deuteronomy 17. Let's see what the problem is. Deuteronomy 17, we see the rules that Solomon is supposed to be following. Deuteronomy 17, go ahead and start in verse 14. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren, you shall set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not a brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself. Verse 16, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. What did Solomon just do? For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And to remind him, verse 18, and it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book, from the one before the priests and the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord the God, and to be careful to observe all the words of the law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. If you're just reading through Chronicles and you don't understand Deuteronomy 17, you say, okay, why did I just read all these verses about horses? This means absolutely nothing. It was the first step towards a really awful, awful decision process that Solomon made. And it all started with horses. Horses. Who would have thought that horses could have brought down the wisest man in the world? How did it work? Just follow the logic. He multiplied horses, what he wasn't supposed to do. So that's just the first thing he did wrong. Well, that still doesn't mean anything bad. Well, where did he get them from? He got them from the Egyptians. So now he has a trade partner with the Egyptians. Well, guess what he does now? In 1 Kings 3, he decides to marry Pharaoh's daughter because he has a trade partnership. So now he's married Pharaoh's daughter. Well, now we know in 1 Kings 11 that since he married Pharaoh's daughter, he started now marrying all the other foreign leaders' wives because that's what he was supposed to do. So now he brought the foreign wives in. 1 Kings 11, he started setting up temples for his foreign wives so that way they could worship their gods. And then guess what happened in 1 Kings 11? He started worshiping their gods right along with them. And it all started with what? A horse. A horse. What does that mean? You have a horse in your life somewhere. It's really not dangerous. It's quite beautiful. It's quite amazing. And that horse is just the first step towards a really long process that could really bring you down. What is that for you? For every single person, it's different. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. And at the moment when you're just looking at your horse, it really doesn't seem to be that big of a deal, does it? But just like Solomon, the horse leads to trade with countries you shouldn't be associated with, which leads to marrying their daughters, which leads to setting up temples and idols, which leads to him then worshiping them, which leads to the kingdom being divided. And it all started with a horse. I don't know what it is for you, but I cannot stress this to you enough. If the Lord has told you, stop, then just stop. If the Lord has said, it's okay, do it, then you better do it. It's the little acts of obedience that God blesses. And it's also the little acts of disobedience that can bring down an entire nation. So just remember this with Solomon. How could the wisest man that lived 
make such unwise personal choices because it all started with a horse. If that's all you get out of tonight, when you drive by horses, just curse them or something. I don't know. It all starts with the horse. Anybody got any quick questions, comments about that? Ryan. Well, when it said that uh, the king made silver and gold as plenty of stone, mm-hmm. It does boggle the mind, and I think that is trying to show how blessed this nation truly was. Um, to show that that gold, that silver was there. The Lord was blessing this nation. And I can't remember if it's in Kings or I can't remember if it's in Chronicles, but there goes a whole chapter where it talks about how much it cost Solomon just to run his personal estate. He had so much stuff, so many servants, so much gold, so much everything. And this is just a wonderful, blessed time. And it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I love to read little tidbits of information. And I have a copy of the uh, 2015 World Almanac, just full of useless information. And when you go through world history, now remember, this is a secular book. When you go through world history, they mention in world history the reign of Solomon as a time of peace. And prosperity for the nation of Israel. And it's fascinating that even the secular world will acknowledge for this very brief reign of one king, Israel was almost a little bit of a power in that nation, in that area, I should say. These guys are blessed. God says, his name is peace. God says, I will bless you. God says, I will take care of you. And they truly were. But like you said, it's kind of amazing to think about all the blessings they have. It's amazing. Anybody else have anything before we move on? Kathy. Yeah, and that's where if you go read Kings, there's a lot more going on. If you go read in Kings when it talks about the transition between David and Solomon, uh, David is alive for a while. David gives some final orders to Solomon. Solomon has a tiny little rebellion he has to deal with. One of his brothers tries to be the king. Chronicles basically says, let's just jump right into the temple. If you want more of the soap opera drama, go read Kings and you can see more of the background that's going on with that. Anybody else have anything before we go on? Russell. Yeah, verse 13. Yeah, this could have been a buildup that's going on here for a while. We don't know for sure. We do know in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says Solomon wanted to start the temple. It looks like the order seems to be the prayer than the blessing. Yeah, we don't want to make this jump into that he came to Jerusalem and all of a sudden just started with the horses. This is something that built up over time. But it shows his heart and his mindset here of, from an economic standpoint of being blessed by the Lord. But you're right. It doesn't give an exact time frame of how long it took to get the horse trade going. Anybody else got anything here? Yeah. Jimmy. Yeah, for Solomon? Yeah, and, and that's the thing is, and I encourage you, I'm looking for it right here. Here it is, 1 Kings 4. 1 Kings 4, if you want to read that. 
Don't turn there now. We're in Chronicles. But if you want to write it down, because if you go to 6, 1 Kings 4, I lost you for the rest of the message. I know how it works. But in 1 Kings 4, it talks about all the blessings that he has and how much it takes to run everything and do everything like that. And I just encourage you, if you want, go back to 1 Kings. Because what you have here in 1 Kings is you do have the chapter of asking for wisdom. You have the blessing of the kingdom. And then you see him starting to, in chapters 5 and 6, then start to build the temple. So Chronicles does make it sound like it happens. Happens very quickly. First Kings gives some more background, like Russ was saying. First Chronicles does. Excuse me. Second Chronicles doesn't really give the time frame. First Kings gives you a little bit more behind the scenes of how long it took to get to this point. Anybody else got anything? Okay. So he decides to start building the temple. Verse one, chapter two. Then Solomon determined to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal house for himself. Solomon selected seventy thousand men to bear burdens, eighty thousand to quarry stone in the mountains, and three. 1,600 to oversee them. Then Solomon sent to Hiram, king of Tyre. That should be a reminder to you. Hiram is the guy that David dealt with a few chapters ago. When David built his house, Hiram was the guy they talked to. Hiram was the wood supplier. That's where they could get wood. Verse 3, As you have dealt with David, my father, and sent him cedars to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me. Behold, I'm building a temple for the name of the Lord my God to dedicate it to him, to burn before him sweet incense for the continual showbread, for the burnt offerings morning and evening on the Sabbaths, on the new moons, and on the set feast of the Lord our God. This is an ordinance forever to Israel. And the temple which I build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a temple, since heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifice before him? Therefore, send me at once a man skillful to work in gold and silver and bronze and iron and purple and crimson and blue as the skill to engrave with the skillful men who are with me in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David my father provided. Also send me cedar and cypress and algum logs from Lebanon, for I know that your servants have skill to cut timber in Lebanon. Indeed, my servants will be with your servants to prepare timber for me in abundance for the temple which I'm about to build shall be great and wonderful. And indeed, I will give to your servants the woodsmen who cut timber 20,000 cores of grain wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of oil. I just want to share real quick out of the New Living Translation what that means. Verse 10, in payment for your woodcutters, I will send 100,000 bushels of crushed wheat, 100,000 bushels of barley, 110,000 gallons of wine, and 110,000 gallons of olive oil. Just to get a picture there, that's a lot. So he's got this deal. We need the wood. We need some expertise in how to deal with this wood. Send us the wood. Send us the people. I'll send you the grain, the wine, the barley, the oil. We got this great trade going on. Verse 11, the Hiram king of Tyre answered in writing, which he sent to Solomon, because the Lord loves his people. He's made you king over them. Hiram also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who made heaven and earth, for he has given King David a wise son, endowed with prudence and understanding, who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal house for himself. And now I've sent a skillful man, endowed with understanding, Haram, my master craftsman, the son of a woman of his daughters of Dan, he's half Jewish, and his father was a man of Tyra, skilled to work with in gold and silver and bronze and iron, stone and wood, purple and blue, fine linen and crimson, and to make any engraving and accomplish any plan which may be given to him with your skillful men and with the skillful men of my lord David your father. Now therefore the wheat, the barley, the oil, and the wine which my lord has spoken of, let him send to his servants. And we will cut wood from Lebanon as much as you need. We will bring it to you in rafts by sea to Joppa, and you will carry it up to Jerusalem. Verse 16, that's about 30 to 40 miles away. So they've shipped the wood down the sea, get it to Joppa. Joppa was Israel's only seaport at this time, so then the wood had to be carried inland about 30, 40 miles 
This is a huge undertaking. And as we get into this the next couple weeks and we see this, this is huge. The amount of workers. I mean, look at what we're dealing with. Go back to verse 2. 70,000 men to bear burdens, 80,000 to quarry stone, 3,600 to oversee them. And then you have all the other people that are dealing with the wood. This is huge. Verse 17. Solomon numbered all the aliens who were in the land of Israel after the census in which David, his father, had numbered them. And they were found to be 153,600. And he made 70,000 of them bearers of burdens, 80,000 stone cutters in the mountain, and 3,600 overseers to make the people work. The Jews have a tradition that during the building of the temple that not a single man got sick, not a single man got hurt, and not a single man died. This was just God's blessing on this from beginning to end. Now, that's not obviously in the Bible, but that's what the Jews teach and believe when it comes to this. Now, there's a lot of just information in there, and it's easy to kind of skip something. I just want to bring out one point of this. Go back, to, if you would, to uh, Solomon's letter to Hiram, starting in verse 3. Look at verse 6 specifically. Who is able to build him a temple, since heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifice before him? Solomon's basically saying, hey, Hiram, we're building a temple for my God to live in, but who could even do that? Who could even do that? I just want to kind of, as we get ready to close, I just want to kind of share this thought with you. Let God be bigger than what you could ever imagine. I think we are so finite in what we think about the Lord. And I think we're so finite in what the Lord can do and move in our life. And really just let the God you serve be bigger than you can ever imagine. Go with me to Ephesians real quick. Ephesians 3. So often I notice this in my prayer life. I approach God with this really difficult situation. And I'm like, oh, Lord, if you can, I mean, if you're able to, I I hope you can. And then we talk to someone. It's like, oh, I prayed about it. I, I sure hope the Lord is able to. Well, wait a second. What type of God am I serving? He's he's bigger than whatever I can imagine here. And like Solomon is saying, who can build a house to contain him? Look at Ephesians 3, please, verse 20. And I know you guys know this verse. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we say or think. So start thinking of the most amazing thing you could think God can do. And then Ephesians says, yeah, it's even more amazing than that. Isn't that amazing? And this is what happens. We have our little prayer life of, oh, Lord, I hope you can. I got a son. He's not walking with the Lord. I sure hope he can move in his life. He can. I got this job situation. I got this finance situation. I got this marriage situation. I got this health situation. He can move in it. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly. All that's to say or think. Isn't that amazing? You can't build a temple to contain him. Ephesians says the most amazing thing you think he can do, he can even do more than what you think he can do. And I just think sometimes as believers, we have to let our God be bigger than what we can ever imagine. And just let him move and just let him work and just let him do things. When you look at these men and women of God that the Lord really used, they were never burdened by, I don't think you can, Lord. They were never burdened by, I sure hope you can, Lord. They just expected it. Philippians 4.19 says this, And my God shall supply all your need. According to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, he shall supply all your need. 
He'll take care of it. It's an amazing thing. There's nothing that can contain God. I just want you to remember that. There's nothing, and don't even let your mind have limitations on what your God can do. Because Solomon says, I can't build him a house. He's bigger than that. What an amazing thought to end with. And this is what starts then next week in chapter 3. It's the construction of the temple. And it's just fascinating as we get into these next few chapters, up and through chapter 7, what all these different temple pieces mean. It'll be a wonderful study. I hope you can make it. And it's an amazing picture of Jesus and Him being your sacrifice. What a blessing that is. Anybody have any final questions, comments? Ryan. In 1 Kings, it says that it took seven years to build a temple mm-hmm. and 13 years for Solomon to It is, and it's kind of interesting that that point has been brought up before because Solomon had an amazing house. There's no way around that. But yeah, that six, seven-year mark to build the temple, what was Solomon's house like that took twice as long? I said, but six, seven years to build the temple, right? Yeah, and then, you know, for uh, Solomon's house being twice as long, yeah, I don't know. Um, The only thing I know is this, is that Solomon's house doesn't represent Jesus. You know, so uh, I've been by some pretty big houses, and uh, I've never seen him represent Christ yet, so I don't know. Anybody else got anything they want to say before we close up? Kathy? I don't think so. I think they did the temple first and then Solomon's house, if I remember correctly. Yeah, they said it took 20 years total. Total for both, yeah. So I think the main focus was the temple, and then it went into the house there. Anybody else have anything before we close up? Hey, let's pray this in. Lord, as we just come to you now, just some of these points that we hit, we just want to make them a part of our lives in all ways and all things. I think of Solomon seeking you. Lord, help us to have a heart to seek you, to seek you, to truly want everything you have for us. And Lord, help us to never contain you. You are bigger than what we could ever imagine. You can do exceedingly abundantly, always say or think. If there's someone here tonight that's coming in and they're just having this moment of doubt of, I just don't know, show them how big you are and how big the God we serve is, that you're able to move and work in ways that we can't even imagine. Thank you, Lord, for your love, your grace, and your mercy. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. Hey, you guys, guys, have a good week, and God bless. Don't forget about Sunday with the Harvest America. And if you've got anything you want to pray over, come up and grab me, and we'll get a chance to pray.